Welcome to the Daily Pursuit Podcast. My name is Morgan Hodge. I am a performance coach and neurobiomechanical specialist. And each week we are looking to bring you an inspiring person or message to help you level up your life. Truly appreciate you taking the time and spending it with me today. Let's level up. What's going on, you guys? I am excited to share this week's episode with you as it's a project that I've been working on for the last while for my facility and the members of my facility. And it's a webinar that I did on the physical states and human neurology, where we looked at how we function in our training, in our life, uh, in our performance based on the physical states that we are in and how our neurology can play a role in that, uh, either leveling up our ability to function and compete or maybe inhibiting us in certain ways. So I wanted to share it with you guys. It's a little bit different format, um, but I hope you enjoy it. So if you like what you hear, share it out with your friends, leave your comment, let me know your thoughts. I'm looking forward to doing more of these types of webinars um, as well as in-person style discussions in the near future. So let me know your thoughts. Level up. The function I'll talk today is on physical states and neurology 101. So basically what we want to be looking at today and thinking about is how do our physical states and our neurology affect our life, our performance, uh, and our training. And um, specifically, we're going to look at just some basics of neurology and what neurology in itself is in the human body. And then we're going to look at the physical states of our body and what those are. Um, so some of the stuff, maybe things that you've heard about before, other stuff may be completely brand new. Um, and that's totally fine. As, again, if you have questions as we go, um, just feel free to kind of write them down or, or put them in the chat. So, of course, physical difficulties right away. There we go. <clears throat> um, today's session. So the topics that we're going to be looking at. Neurobiological basics. What is neuroplasticity? Your neurology simplified. Our physical states. Our training application. And then just generally emerging uh, subfields around all of this information. So I like this quote. This is something that I came across. And a lot of this information is coming from the education that I've uh, received through a company called Z Health uh, Performance, um, which is a neurobiomechanical education company, as well as other um, neurobiomechanical training education that I've received through other, other means as well. This quote is sort of a foundation of it all that I really, really love. So everything you've ever felt or done in your life was due to brain function. At the most basic level, the intricate firing rates and patterns of your brain both determine who you have been and more importantly, who you will become. All human change represents changes in that individual's nervous system. All that we are is brain derived. So when we kind of look at this, um, so first and foremost, the who we are and um, everything that we are is coming from what we have felt and what we have done in our life. And that's a really important factor to note right off the bat when it comes to our neurology, our body and, and our movements and our training, because our body in itself bases everything it does based on what we have felt and what we have experienced in our life. It's going to make predictions and going to want to have a predictive pattern in what it does based on the things that it has experienced before. So we need to have that understanding right away that everything that we have done in our life, everything we have felt, experienced, and gone through will play a role in what we do, how we move, how we feel, um, and the processes that we go through that way. Uh, when we continue down that quote, at the most basic level, the intricate firing rates and patterns of your brain both determine who you may be, uh, who you have been, and more importantly, who you will become. So our brain is firing at rates that are just massive in the whole scheme of things. I'm not going to get into all the nitty gritty details of it, but the firing rates and the in goings on on the brain level is something that is just profound when you actually look into those details, as far as just all that's happening within our brain on any given moment and at any given time for what we are looking to do. All human change represents changes in that individual's nervous system. So anything you do, there's going to be a change in your nervous system. Every experience you have, good or bad, there's going to be an ex a change in your nervous system. 
And this is something that uh, I'll get a little bit more into when we talk about neuroplasticity, but this wasn't always the thought. So there wasn't always a thought that our brain would change as we went and about our life as we got older. It used to be this prevailing thought that at a certain point, our nervous system and our brain just kind of cemented in place and that nothing else would change. It was what it was at that period in time. And then that's all that we would ever have. Now it's understood that all human change, everything that we do, there's going to be change in our nervous system throughout our entire life. And so in all of that, all that we are is brain derived. So everything that we do, it starts from here, from our brain. So the main question that we want to work through today is how does our nervous system, its function and current state affect our output when it comes to training, performance, and life? So you could apply these things in this thought process to your training. If, if you're someone that trains on a regular basis, you can apply it to just your life in general and the sensations and feelings that you have throughout your life, um, the performance that you have in your workplace, in your sport, whatever it may be. So this is what we want to consider today. So a few things that we're going to be looking at, a few kind of broad categories. The functional application, which is how can we take action on our physical states and our neurology? So what are some things that we can do with that? Um, and then the research-backed science side of it, which is how does it all work and what can affect our nervous system? So when we start off, we're going to be considering okay, just generally how does this all work? How does our nervous system work? What is the, the basics of it? And then how can we apply that to our life and to our training and the physical states that we go in and out of? So when we look at our neurobiological basics, we have some structural brain changes that occur as we go through experiences and as we have experiences in our life, as we train, as we learn new things, we're going to have structural brain changes. And this is known as neuroplasticity. And so this is literally a change that occurs in your brain when you are doing something or when you're putting focused effort into something. And so this is an emerging area that has been around for decades and it's been known for decades, but it's something that wasn't really given the weight that it deserves um, up until recently in that we can continue to make true plastic change in our brain, literal changes of motor function and output throughout entire life to the point that someone that is blind and cannot see, they have been able to help them see by connecting electrodes to their tongue and they see through their tongue. And that's caused neuroplasticity change in their brain so that they can see through their tongue. Okay. Craziness. I know it sounds all voodoo-y, but this is the thing is that our brain can literally cre uh, create change no matter what. Um, it's just a matter of what are these stimuluses, what are the things that we're receiving? Uh, and then functional brain changes. So this is something that um, uh, you can kind of go down the rabbit hole with this guy with our free energy principle by Carl Friesten. Um, really, really, really interesting uh, whole concept, but the very short Cole's notes of this is that our brain and our body is always looking to simplify and create as little free energy as possible. It wants to be able to predict what it's doing. And I said that at the start, our brain and our body wants to be able to predict more efficiently what it's doing. And if it can do that, the less free energy we create. But if we're not predicting properly, then the more free energy is gonna be created, which pushes us more towards death essentially. So lack of survival. Now, uh, creation of free energy and these functional brain changes that occur with that can be positive or negative in our minds. How we perceive it can be positive or negative. To our brain, it doesn't really matter. It's a matter of, is this the predicted output? Yes or no. And will this keep me safe? Yes or no. And that's something that we're going to talk about here in a second. So when it comes to structural brain changes, uh, some basics about our human nervous system. Uh, latest estimates state that there are up to 120 billion neurons in the human brain. Um, so each of these neurons connects to and works with between 10,000 and 80,000 other neurons. So if we do that math, we end up with 9.6 quadrillion potential connections in our brain. 
And so if you put that in perspective, the Milky Way galaxy has about 200 million stars. So when we think about that, we think about the connections and all of the firing that's going on just in here and what that means to our output. That is a massive, massive, massive area of potential. <clears throat> that's a massive amount of uh, ability to affect change in our body. So with that, within that, the environment, um, our environment equals our expectations. So what do I mean by that? Environment equaling our expectations. The environment that we put ourselves in, that we are in on a daily basis, and that can be our physical environment, you know, your house, the gym, whatever it may be, that can be your psychological environment. So what is that space like for you? That can be the internal environment of your system itself, right? The literal physical internal aspect of your body. Um, that can be your uh, social environment. What is the social circle? What are the, you know, the, you are the sum of, what is it, the 10 most people closest to you or the five most people closest to you, whatever that statement is, that's an environment as well. So our environment equals our expectations. So the environment that we place ourselves in on a continual basis creates a predictability pattern and an expectation pattern for our brain for it to expect something to come out of that. It expects a certain outcome. So when we look at the signaling and everything that goes on from a nervous system standpoint, there's 400 billion total signals per second that are happening. 2,000 of these are unconscious awareness per second, right? So these are things that we just don't even know about that are happening in our body. 2,000 of these. 40 of them are conscious. So we're consciously aware of these things uh, per second. And then seven plus or minus two are actual cognitive thoughts per second. So this essentially means that these are the things that we can actually think about in a moment in time and put effort towards. But there's a whole bunch of other underlying things that are constantly feeding us information uh, throughout that whole time as well that we aren't even consciously thinking about. So again, though, this plays back to let's work, think about these components. Let's think about these factors that are affecting change in our body and maybe we can work on some of them to create a more positive change more positive output and then neuroplasticity so any change in neuron structure or function that is observed either directly from measures of individual neurons or inferred from measures taken across populations of neurons so like i spoke about before this is just that change that occurs because of a repeated stimulus so if we repeatedly do something over and over again, no matter if it's good or bad for us, we will make a plastic change. And this is important because if we look at our habits in our day-to-day -day life, in our training, uh, in our thought processes, in the environments that we uh, attend and go into on a day-to-day -day basis, every one of those environments, every one of those scenarios, we are either positively creating a positive atmosphere and a positive change for ourselves, or we're creating a negative change for ourselves. Our brain doesn't care either way. It doesn't care about good or bad. It's just going to create the necessary change to repeat the, the process that we continually do so that its prediction can remain the same so that there's less free energy so that it can survive longer in its mind. Even though for us, sometimes that means that we feel like crap and it's not something that actually is, feels very good but it's a predictive pattern that we've created and we've created a neuroplastic change in that. So real simply, this is our sort of neurology simplified. Our nervous system's job, there's two of them. Number one, survival. Number two is movement. So when we think about the survival, why is that? Why is number one survival? In and on itself, our brain, like I say, is looking to just ensure that we can continue to live a long and healthy life. And so it's going to do whatever it needs to to ensure that we can survive in everything that we are providing it in the environments that we are continually going into. The secondary to that is our movement because everything that we do involves some form of movement. And when I talk about movement, I don't always just mean, you know, jumping, running, skipping, throwing. Movement in itself is the uh, overall output that our body does all the way down to the movement of um, the cells and the tissues when we sweat. There's actual mechanical movement with that. 
all the way up to the big stuff of us mechanically firing our tissues to perform a jumping movement pattern. So there's movement in every way, shape, or form. So when we look at our neurology simplified, the main aspect of this is our input, our interpretation, and our output. Yes, Brooke. Sorry. Brooke wants to row. Um, with our neurology simplified, the main components of this are input, interpretation, and output. When we think about our input, this is essentially our body receiving information. So we call this afferent inputs. So it's receiving information, okay? Um, and like I say, your nervous system does three things in a way. So this information that it receives can be a whole bunch of things. And I'm gonna to touch on those in a second as far as what some of the main ones are. The second thing that it does is it decides what the input means and what to do about it. So interpretation and decision-making. So after it receives information, after your nervous system receives input from your body, then it's going to decide what should we do about it? Is this something that I've experienced before? Is this something that I've done before in my life? Have I felt this sensation before? Have I had this receptor fire before and I know what this is? What's that experience that I'm going through? So if it can interpret that and it recognizes that, or even if it doesn't recognize it and interprets it as something new, that's going to dictate the output that it experienced or that you experience. And so that output, which is an efferent output, is a motor output. And that's why I say, when I talk about movement or motor output, it's not just about running, jumping, skipping, throwing. It's whatever that output is in your body, which potentially could mean pain, could mean limitation, could mean loss of strength and inability to perform something at the level that you expected to, if we're thinking about a training perspective. So inputs, let's start there. What are the inputs that we experience in our body? There's a few different categories that uh, I'm going to touch on. The first one is exteroception. So extero meaning external, um, and then the ascension, the sensing of it. So monitoring our external environment is what our general, what this category of inputs is. Uh, the little graph on the side, the numbers don't really necessarily mean anything. It's just a showcase of the um, severity in which we have a process is going to for each type of extraception input. So taste is the smallest amount of, of neurological input, smell, touch, auditory, and then vision. Vision plays a massive, massive role in our ability to move and function. If we can't see well, then we typically don't move as well. And that lack of movement could mean a loss of strength, a loss of power output, a loss of fluidity, um, but it, it could mean that we have pain um, because of our vision impairment, um, et cetera, on that, in that regards. So extraception, we've heard about these before, taste, smell, touch, uh, hearing, and sight, but these play a big role in our ability to function. And it's important that we recognize them because as obvious as vision or auditory might be to movement, something like taste or smell can still have a profound impact on someone's ability to function. There's actually some research that was done on smell and Alzheimer's. And they noted that there was a decrease in someone's ability to smell um, a certain stimulus in correlation to Alzheimer's. And so what they found with it was that they tested a control group and they had a jar of peanut butter and they held it a certain number of um, distance away from them, and then they recorded the distance. It was about 30 centimeters at first away from them, and it recorded the distance in which they could first initially smell the peanut butter, both right and left nostril. And for the control group, it was about 17 centimeters away. For the group that had Alzheimer's, they found that uh, they could, on one side, they were matched the control group of uh, 17 centimeters, but on the other side, there was about five centimeters on, in which they couldn't, they could smell the peanut butter. It was only until they got into about five centimeters. 
So smell can have a profound impact on our output and our function and our brain health um, in its ability to actually process and, and, and uh, go about our daily life and the, the information that we receive. Uh, Caroline asked a question, what if we have imbalances from one eye to the other? can see fine in one eye, but not well at all in the other. So absolutely, that can play a role in our ability to function and uh, our ability to control our position and our movement um, and the sensations that we feel in our body and as we go throughout our day. So if we have an imbalance in one eye to the other, then our body is going to compensate. So a real baseline of this that we typically see is if someone has an imbalance, say, in their left eye and the right eye is stronger, you will typically see someone rotate their body towards the center line with their more dominant eye to bring that eye more in focus and center. That way they're able to process the, the information of the world more effectively um, and it's now minimizing the threat that they have. Um, so that's a very baseline aspect of that. Second or other types of inputs that we have in our body are our interoception. So this is awareness of our bodily sensations and feelings. So this is the internal environment of our body. So our heart rate, our respiration, our visceral organs, our thermal regulation, our sense of ownership. So all of these are important aspects if our, for our body to understand, uh, for our brain to understand, and for us to make note of in regards to the state that we're in, how we're feeling about something, how something is affecting us. Right? You notice that when you're anxious about something maybe it's a competition that you're about to do or it's um you know a test at school what do you notice changes in your body you probably notice some interoception changes that occur in that you feel heart rate maybe increases or maybe you actually go a period of time and you're like holy cow i haven't been breathing for the last what feels like two minutes right you're holding your breath because you're so tense okay so or you feel that sort of hot sweaty kind of nature because you're just stressing out about something so our interoception is the awareness of our bodily sensations and our feelings that we have and the sense of ownership side of that is that internal aspect of ourself and what we're about to do that sort of gut feeling in regards to something that we're about to do so do you own that internal aspect of yourself or do you question it that's where that kind of comes into play so interoception is an important part of input because these feed into our body, these provide us information for what we're about to do. Um, and it can either push us towards a certain state or it can move us away from a certain state, depending on what is firing and what isn't. Proprioception, this is the awareness of our limb and body position in space. So we have a bunch of different receptors. Okay, so that's what our proprioception is essentially about, is understanding where our body and joints and limbs and, and whatnot are at in space. And we use a bunch of receptors to understand that. Mechanoreceptors. So these are mechanical stress and strain. Uh, that's what they sense. Our baroreceptors sense pressure. Okay? Our thermoreceptors, as it sounds, temperature. Chemoreceptors are chemical stimuli. EM receptors or electromagnet receptors. Uh, light energy, sort of where this is typically comes in, and then our nociceptors, so threat, pain, or perception of. And that's really important because nociceptors, what you'll, typically, what you'll often see in uh, lecture material and in, in um, uh, current, not fairly current literature, is you'll sometimes see those called pain receptors. And that's actually not valid. We don't actually have pain receptors in our body because pain in itself is an output of our body. It's not an input. And so these are all receptors that provide inputs to our body. And so nociceptors, or what you might see now in current, more current literature is threat receptors. Um, they sense threat, pain, or the perception or expectation thereof. So something that given prior experience, we might expect something to hurt. Therefore, our body signals it and then output pain. So this is where you might have previous injury that or previous pattern of movement that you that you hurt yourself doing years and years ago. And then all of a sudden, it just starts hurting again. That's a threat response based on your body's expectation of pain or of a threat to your body and to your survival. So just because we have pain somewhere, 
doesn't necessarily mean that you caused an injury there. It just might mean that that's the output that your body is uh, providing you at the time to survive. So from that input side of things, we go into our interpretation and decision-making. So this is where we start to apply what our body is giving us, right? Our brain starts to apply what it is giving us, the information that it's providing us. So from an interpretation standpoint, we're taking our senses, we're looking at our memories and our prediction patterns. So our senses, we combine that with what are the memories that we have of the current situation that we're in? So what are the experiences that we've had? Um, what do we have excitement with this current situation? Is there nervousness with this current situation? What are the memories that we have of that? And then what's the predictive pattern from there? Right? Our body's going to go, what happened last time with this? And so what do I need to do this time? Is it something I can predict? Is it something I recognize, good or bad? Is it something I recognize? If it is, great, I know the output. If it isn't, okay, I need to decide on what the output's gonna be to hopefully make myself feel as safe as possible. That's what our brain is essentially doing. So it's taking those senses that we just talked about, all those inputs, um, and it's combining it with the memories we have and the predictions that we have. And so when we go into our actual decision-making from our brain level, it starts with our old brain first. And so without getting into the actual structural anatomy of the brain, essentially we have our new brain, which is the big main brain that we know about. And then the old brain is kind of tucked in, inside of that, right? And our old brain is um, connected with motives, emotion, and behaviors. So very foundational components of our being, of our self. Very, things, uh, very much things that are more unconscious in nature or kind of reactive self. So it starts there and it, it utilizes old brain to look at prior emotions, prior behaviors, prior motives, and how those affected us, what we did with that. Then it moves to the new brain, which is where we have imagination and planning and integration, rumination. So this is where we can start to utilize our more conscious brain for the decision that we're about to do. So sometimes we can override the decision that's about to happen because we have our conscious brain, good or bad, we can override what we tell ourselves to do. And that will really come into play when we get into our physical states here uh, in the second half of this, this webinar. After it's gone through the new brain, we then have our decision. And again, like I've talked about this whole time, this decision can be negative or positive as the brain doesn't know or care between good or bad. So regardless, our brain is just going to make a decision, not based on good or bad that we know, that we consciously think about, right? We consciously think that, well, that, you know, feeling pain is bad. That's sort of a general cons uh, conscious thought that most people have. To our brain, feeling pain may be good or limiting our output may be a good thing because it feels that if, you, if it doesn't do that, you're going to hurt yourself. Now, this can go both ends of the spectrum. Um, I'm sure some of us have heard of those crazy stories where that grandma is watching their grandchild and the kid gets stuck under a car and the grandma lifts the car up off the grandchild, right? How does that happen? Well, in that moment in time, our brain decided and it looked at the situation and went, we're going to take the brakes off because this is life or death right here. Your survival mode kicks in, your adrenaline kicks in, and that grandma lifts that car up off the grandchild. They wreck themselves doing so, but in the moment, their brain decides, that's what I need to do. That's the output I need, no matter what the, the uh, result of it. No matter what the negative repercussions on me physically, that's the output I need. So our brain is very powerful that way, and more often than not, it's going to limit our output more than we actually believe or, or even recognize on a day-to-day -day basis. Because our body in itself, we are all strong enough muscularly if we had full capacity of our tissues to actually break our bones. But our brain doesn't let us contract our tissues to that level of strength because that's not good for survival. So our brain is gonna make the decision, negative or positive, um, doesn't know, doesn't care between the good or bad, based on what it feels is the best output 
for us to survive. So when we think about those outputs and we think about good or bad, we have outputs that go towards survival and outputs that go towards performance. So survival outputs are things like pain, fatigue, inflexibility, dizziness, poor movement, poor balance, migraines. These are all outputs of the body that push us towards the survival end of that spectrum because our body's going and our brain's going, we need to survive. And in order to make you adjust what you're doing and change the pattern that you're on, I'm going to cause pain or I'm going to cause dizziness or I'm going to cause migraines. Now a really like common survival aspect and a survival output that we see is that seasickness feeling. When you're on a boat and all of a sudden you feel like woozy and then it's like you need to throw up. Well, what does that do? It gets you off of the thing that's causing that issue from a vestibular sense and a balanced sense. It gets you away from that because now you need to go throw up and get you off of that boat. If you have pain, low back pain, it stops you from moving. It makes you stop doing what you're doing and lay down or get away from what it is you're doing. So survival side of things can be a positive thing and your body will always come back to it in the sense of survival. If it's something that you've repeated over and over and over again, you've had decades of dizziness and dizzy spells, right? After all those years and years and years of dizziness, then your body will understand how to do that really, really well. Just like the 10,000 hour rule, when you practice a skill, your body has practiced dizziness for all that time. And so when you have a certain scenario that threatens you, dizziness might pop up because that's what your body knows. That's what it understands to protect you. So that's the survival end of the spectrum. So what we want to do is that we want to look at it and go, okay, how can we affect the outputs in a way that push us towards performance? How can we make it so that the outputs that we have are pain-free movement, our great balance, our high coordination, our immune health. We have speed, we have endocrine health, we have strength. What can we do to affect change in those areas and have those type of outputs instead of the survival outputs? That's what we want to focus on. So now that we have a super clear, I know it's a lot of information, understanding of our nervous system basics, we're gonna look at our physical states. I know that I just threw a whole bunch of information at you guys, but stick with me, bear with me, that was very sciencey. So some common questions that we look at. How does our nervous system and its function affect our output when it comes to training and performance? That was the starting point. And we're still going to get back to that by the end of this. A second component is what is the uh, phylogenetic hierarchy? And then what is, or how is such a theory relevant to fitness and health? So these are some questions that we're going to be kind of working through um, in regards to our physical states as we progress here. So the phylogenetic hierarchy and training. This is still some sciencey stuff, so I apologize off the bat. We'll get to some very tangible things. When it comes to our nervous system, there's two sides when we think about it from our training, our output, our life. There's our parasympathetic side, and there's our sympathetic side. So our parasympathetic side, uh, this is the side that kind of makes us uniquely human. Um, it provides us with the ability to have relationships, to have connection, to live in social groups. That's what our parasympathetic side really uh, affects and has um, an effect on us with. Um, it, has, it allows us a seat of awareness of our environment uh, allows us to interact and problem solve with the outside world. Without our parasympathetic nervous system, we wouldn't be able to do that. We wouldn't be able to be in a social setting and have social construct and meaning. So it's really important for that. Um, and the massive success of CrossFit itself can be largely attributed to this community aspect and the art of connection. It's the side that a lot of, if you do CrossFit, if you do group training, whatever it is, even personal training, it's our parasympathetic side that is getting stimulated when we're in those environments because it's a social environment. And by putting us in a social environment, it puts us in a state of feeling comfortable and calm. 
And that's the benefit of CrossFit group classes or group classes or personal training one-on-one with someone and being in a positive social interaction that way. You know, that sense of calm when you're with someone, hopefully it's, you're sitting here with your spouse or loved one and you feel a sense of calm beside them most of the time, sometimes maybe not, but this is what our parasympathetic side is responsible for. On the other side of that, our sympathetic side, this is when communication and socialization fail and we look to fight and we look to escape or we look to flee the situation. So our sympathetic side is all about taking action on something. So think about an athlete facing challenge in their training or competition. Uh, if, it, if we can't reason with um, what is going on, then that athlete may become angry and frustrated and lash out. Maybe it's at a judge. Maybe it's at a competitor. Maybe it's at themselves. Um, they might have this outburst, and that's coming from the sympathetic side. And if that reaction that they do doesn't get a reward, doesn't get acknowledged, um, then the next thing that they might do is retreat or flee. So our sympathetic side is all about action taking in that you're either going to fight, you're going to freeze, or you're going to run or flight. So a few notes on our parasympathetic nervous system, specifically on that side, we care about what we call our vagus nerve. And there's two sides to our vagus nerve that are important for us to know about. The ventral side of our vagus nerve, this allows us to take action and socialize. So this is the part of our vagus nerve and our parasympathetic system that allows us to socialize with other individuals. And when we are in social settings, this is the side that is getting stimulated. And so this nerve controls our ability to read posture and the muscles of the face. Um, so when you guys enter a room, or you, you, know, you go into a coffee shop and you look at the barista or you look at the people in the coffee shop. It's this side of your nervous system, it's this part of your vagus nerve where you are checking the posture of the individual as well as the musculature underneath their eyes and you're seeing what that looks like. Because from a very foundational rudimentary sense of humans, we're looking to see if they have a certain expression on their face and that will dictate if they are a threat or if they are safe. So this is a very foundational component of threat response for our body. And that's what our vagus nerve is really important for is understanding and reading our environment that way. But this also controls our heart rate and that it helps to keep us at a lower heart rate. So when we think about training perspective and being in a competition, or being in a stressful environment that we want to feel calm in, and we don't want to have that jacked up heart rate, stimulating and targeting our ventral vagus nerve can have a positive effect for us in that way, because we can help to control our heart rate and bring it down. So this allows us to control our emotion and control our state, which in the whole broad term of this is our flow state. So that's a really important uh, place to be, and it's something that we might have heard about Maybe with athletics where the, an athlete talks about, I was in the flow, I was in the zone. This is where they're living in, is that flow state of being where they can control their environment, they can control their emotions, they feel like they have the power to do exactly what they want to do. The other side of our vagus nerve is called our dorsal vagus nerve. And so our dorsal vagus nerve, this checks the state of our body. Um, this nerve is the oldest one that we have. So it's very, very foundational to our human neurology and what we do. Um, but this side of our vagus nerve, um, which is our freeze state, it's not a mental weakness. Uh, so playing dead in the freeze state, uh, I'll get on how do you simulate your ventral vagus nerve in a second. Um, so playing dead in the freeze state is not a mental weakness. So often when we think about our performance and our movement and we have um, you see someone that they freeze up or in your training you freeze up in a moment it's not a mental weakness um, basically what's happening is that your body's requesting the lowest amount of energy um, to, to utilize so that our brain uh, uh, puts us in that state for survival sense so it can be very basic from a uh, training perspective right in a training session we're not going to die 
but in our brain's mind, we may need to go into a freeze state because it feels like, oh, we're super threatened, so we need to chill out and freeze. But it could be in a survival end of it where we need to do something um, to pause what we're doing. We're getting chased by a bear, and we need to, in your brain's mind, freezing and staying still might be the safest thing for you to do, as opposed to running and using a whole bunch of energy. Because for your brain's perspective, keeping as much energy as possible is what is going to keep you alive the longest. So this side of things is called our freeze state. Just jumping back quickly to the question, how do you stimulate your ventral vagus nerve? So stimulating our ventral vagus nerve, a uh, few different ways that we can, we can go about stimulating this. Our ventral vagus network, um, this runs from our diaphragm up through our lungs, connects with the neurology of our lungs, and connects to our neck, connects to our throat, um, our jaw, and uh, all the way up that chain into our brainstem. And so we can stimulate our ventral vagus nerve through aspects of breathing, through aspects of uh, swallowing or gargling or humming, things to do with your neck, um, as well as, uh, like I say, with swallowing, like a cold drink water. This can be a very good stimulant for our ventral vagus nerve and create a sense of calm uh, for us. Breathing stuff is super important when it comes to our ventral vagus nerve and simulation of that. So when you hear people talk about breathing work and breath work, and you talk about breathing and training, this can be a hugely impactful thing to work on and to focus on for yourself. And a lot of people have issues with their breathing um, in general. And so this is a, a starting point for, for a lot of people to work on to help stimulate their ventral vagus nerve. On the other side, our sympathetic nervous system, there's the two parts of this. We have our fight part and we have our flight part. So with our sympathetic side, we wanna fight. So first we try to fight, right? First we try to go at it and attack it. Then if we get our asses kicked, then we start to run and we start to, uh, or flee. So that's the sympathetic side. This is that taking action side. So, you know, you, you go into something and you start to fight, you start to attack it, and then it doesn't go your way. And so you're starting to get your ass kicked. And now it's like, oh crap, I got to change course. Maybe that means I got to flee. So what this looks like from a flow standpoint is this arch of our physical states where we have our freeze, we have our flow, we have our fight. So I'm pointing at it like you guys can see me pointing at it. You can't. Um, freeze, flow, fight, and flight. Uh, ideally, we start in, in our flow state which is our parasympathetic state. Um, and so that's that region in, in the orange there. Um, and underneath these, there's different components that are happening with it from an internal aspect of um, our metabolic system. Then we go into the fight state, so sympathetic. And I'll get into the details of how that kind of flows in a more tangible way in a second. Once we've gone through that fight state, then it goes to flight, which is still sympathetic. And then ultimately going back to freeze, which is our parasympathetic state again, and then flowing back through that cycle. So how does this all connect to our training and our output and our performance? What does that kind of look like? Um, and how can we affect change there? So the case scenario that I want to utilize is a common thing for those that have done CrossFit. Um, if you haven't, it's okay. If you know what a clean and jerk is, it's taking a barbell from ground to the shoulders and then to overhead. And the workout grace in CrossFit World is 30 cleaning jerks per time. Um, and so with our 30 cleaning jerks per time, a typical flow that happens with this workout, if anyone's done it before, it kind of sucks. It's a tough workout, right? But the flow, if you're thinking about our, our flow, fight, flight, and freeze state, then hold on one second, please. Sorry. All right. So our typical flow with this workout is first 10 reps of it, of that 30 rep workout. We are starting off in flow state, right? You feel good. 
right? So this can, whether this is grace or whether this is a workout that you, you've done recently or competition you've done recently, think about it in that realm. So you start off the first 10 reps, the first little bit of that thing, you feel good, you feel pumped, right? You're like, I got this, right? Then if we're talking about grace, rep 12 hits. And all of a sudden you're like, okay, this is starting to get tough, but don't be a wimp, all right? Suck it up. Let's start to get after this, right? And you start to get that kind of like elevated sense in your body, right? This is where a workout's getting tough, but you're like, no, I got this and I can fight through this, okay? Then we continue on. You get a few more reps in. Rep 16 comes around, right? You're just over halfway, but all of a sudden your brain is like, oh crap, this sucks. So you drop the bar and you walk away, right? This is the flight state. So you have that fear starting to set in, okay? Which is when we think about it, looking at it just you know, on a screen here, like it's so illogical, you're like, what am I afraid of? Um, but you start to think like, crap, that look, that hurts, this sucks, you know, that fear setting in. I know she's noisy and you love her, but I can't think when she's screaming in the background. <laughs> um, but so we go to rep 16 and then we try three more, okay? We try three more reps, we're like, no, we can do this, but now we're bent over, we're going, I don't love my life, I don't, you're not going, I love my coach. That's not typically what I hear. Um, you know, I don't get the, I love you coach in that moment. Um, you're not like, I'm so happy I'm doing this workout. Um, typically it's more like, what am I, what am I doing with my life? Why did I uh, have two glasses of wine last night or a whole bottle? Right? Like you start to going through all these things in your mind. Um, and this is you going into that free state. So literally it's, you start off, you're going after the workout, then you get angry. You start to hit some more reps. Then all of a sudden you start to have that doubt set in. So you drop the bar, you walk away. Then you keep going, you try three more. And then all of a sudden you freeze and it's that full on stop of like crap. And you're trying to psych yourself back up. And then what happens is that we go back through the process. So then you go back into that flow. You're like, no, I got this. I can keep going. Okay. Flight mode comes on at rep three. Yeah. Um, so you start to go back through that flow state and you start to feel good again for a few more reps. You start to get an anger again. You're in that fight mode. So you're in that sympathetic state and then you go back through flight and then you go back through the freeze again. And then usually by rep 30, boom, you're done laying on the ground. You're exhausted. You're tired and still not praising your coach typically, but, uh, that comes later. So you go through this cycle, you rinse and repeat this cycle no matter if it's grace, no matter if it's whatever competition you're going through, maybe it's a marathon that you're running. And as you're going through that marathon, you're feeling that flow kind of getting into it, right? You get to that point where you're like, you're fighting and you're like, no, I got this. But then you get to a point where you kind of start to doubt. And then maybe there's a freeze state and maybe it's a very micro freeze state. It doesn't mean that it has to be a full on stop, but there might be a point in time where it's just like, there's a, there's a shutoff, but then you get yourself back into a flow state and you continue working through. On a nervous system level, you are going from that parasympathetic into sympathetic and back through that. That's sort of a general idea of what typically happens when we see someone start a workout, put the bar down, stop moving, totally freeze, pick it back up, do some more reps, put it down, freeze, and go through that. Now, is that ideal for what we want to do? Not necessarily because we want to be able to continue to move. We want to be able to continue to flow and function. So what does all that mean in the whole scheme of things? And what can we do from here to affect change in those aspects? Ideally, we want our parasympathetic and our sympathetic state to be working together. Because if, uh, if we're in that flow and fight state, then this is what's kind of considered the ultra instinct mode when you've really mastered your ability to stay in that flow and fight state. So when we think about the arch, we're staying in that flow and fight state, rocking kind of back and forth. So you go into a fight mode, but then you don't go into uh, the flight side of things. You don't go down into that. You stay back and you go back into flow. So those that are really good at staying in a certain state in their training and, and not able to, or not ever putting the bar down or stopping, they're in that zone. They're in that flow fight zone and they're just kind of staying in that back and forth. So this exemplifies that arch being balanced, which is what we want to have. 
some other aspects of this um, from a deeper metabolic side of things is this is where we also will see production and proper use of lactate taking place. And we'll also see gluconeogenesis triggered. Um, so the brain is being fed most efficiently and all the conditions necessary for the top of the arch are there. So your system is at its best when you're in this state. So if you can train yourself to be in that flow fight state and stay at that component of the arch, then you are going to be in an optimal state for function and performance and for your training. So this is, you're not going to that state of running away from it, stopping, pausing, collapsing, whatever it is, you're staying in that, in that flow state. So again, when we think about our parasympathetic and our sympathetic, our parasympathetic side, this is that socialization side, our sympathetic side, this is that action fighting side. For those of us that have done a lot of training before, um, we've probably felt that lactic threshold or that lactate threshold before that feeling of burning sensation in your body, that panic sensation, right? You have cortisol pumping in your body, like pollicis is starting oxidation of lactate is starting. Um, and so all these things become a problem and you start to have that feeling of like, I need to stop. So in our training, if we can better control that time and that experience and not go overboard on that, we're going to be able to have a better output. So if we can control the inputs that are coming in and, and how we go about those, we can have a better output. So this is why I say, think about our inputs, our decisions and our outputs, the inputs that you have in your training and what you do, the stimulus that you provide it, that it experiences will then help to dictate the decisions that you make and then help to dictate the output that you have. Um, does the parasympathetic system influence the lactic threshold or is it the other way around? So working at the lactic threshold certainly doesn't result in flow. So working at your lactic threshold, if you're doing it properly and effectively, you are in a flow state while you're doing it. If you're working at lactic threshold properly, so you will be in a parasympathetic state and crossing back and forth between parasympathetic and sympathetic. Um, so you will be holding that state and it is technically a flow state from a neurological standpoint. You're more definitely pushing towards fight, right? Um, but there's, there's sort of the time and place for it. So if we're thinking about lactic threshold and just the ability to sustain effort for a long period of time and hold that lactic threshold, that would be a flow fight state that you're wanting to stay in. So if you think about this from just simply, I want to be able to do something for an extended period of time and have a higher lactic threshold, you're staying in that flow fight state for an extended period of time. So our application to our training, to our life, to our performance. Um, preparation first and foremost. So this is the idea of like, what are the potential inputs that you're going to be providing your body? So some of the questions that I have with this are identifying your current state of self. So when you go into training, when you go into a job interview, when you go into um, a competition in your life, what is your current state? What are you feeling? So this is referring to, you know, what are you feeling as far as those interoception feelings? What is your breathing? What is your heart rate? Right? What are you sensing? Right? What are you seeing? What are you feeling? What are those inputs that are coming into your body from an extraoception standpoint? What is that proprioception of your body? How are you feeling right now? Um, so identifying your current state of self, you take those inputs and your idea, and then you identify that into, you know, am I in a feeling in a state of fight? You know, am I wanting to take action? Am I frustrated? Um, am I like feeling anger? Am I feeling like I, I don't want to attack something? Or am I in a state of withdrawal and I'm in a state of flight or in freeze? So if you can identify what state you are in beforehand, then you can work on the proper actions to get you in the right state for what you're about to do. Uh, sorry, one question about lactic. Is this referring to first lactic threshold or second lactic threshold? So what I was talking about previously is there's a production of lactate, and then there's lactic threshold. So lactic threshold is that just lactic threshold ability to sustain effort. So that first lactic threshold that someone can hold um, versus a production of lactate, which is a whole other thing in regards to output and effort. 
Um, so this is just purely talking about just first lactic threshold of holding sustained effort, um, where it starts to have that panic and pain setting. Um, what inputs are providing you? So when it comes to our preparation, what inputs are, are giving to you at that time? So what are, the, what are the things that you're experiencing? What are they giving to you right now? What are you feeling? So what are those inputs going to do for you? Identifying your intention for the day. So if you can identify what is your intention for the day, then that's going to have a positive effect on your training, on your environment that you're going into, whether it's competitive, whether it's work, et cetera. If you identify that intention, then you set yourself up in the right state. So if you know that your intention is to attack something and to, you know, my goal is to go at this workout as hard as I physically can, that's going to set you in a certain state already. So by creating that intention and understanding of your state, then you're going to position yourself and move yourself towards a certain type of dynamic and a certain type of sensation. And then fueling for what you're about to do. So this is more of a, on the metabolic side and, and nutrition side, but fueling, you know, our taste, our smell, um, those are all aspects that can play a role in our, our output and what our body does. So if we are fueling incorrectly for what we're about to do, then our body might not have the performance that it's looking to, that we are looking to have. So if we can fuel for what we're about to do for the thing that we need to be able to do next, then we can set ourselves up and prepare ourselves well for what, what's to come. Once we've understood that and we've prepared properly, then we can take action. So this is where taking intentional action is key. So when it comes to training, this is really, really, really foundational in our ability to improve and perform, right? A lot of times uh, people will go into training without intention. And so they'll just mindlessly do their training routine. And if we do that, then we're not going to get as much of a positive output from that as we could. doesn't mean that you won't get some change, but if we go into it without setting that intention, having that intentional action in our training um, or in the tasks that we're looking to do, we're not going to get the utmost out of it that we possibly could. If your training outlined that you needed to, you know, go at something as hard as you physically could, but you didn't take that intentional action to do that and you didn't prepare yourself to do that, then your output is not going to actually be that. So we need to be honest with ourselves as far as the intentional action that we take um, when it comes to our, our output or our training. Uh, what inputs are you experiencing? So while you're in that moment, while you're taking action, what are you experiencing? And this comes from my end of it when I watch someone train. Um, I'm looking at sort of what's going on with them. And so something that I look at is those inputs of like visual and vestibular um, to see what is going on. So I'm looking at someone I'm seeing, you know, where are their eyes looking? Because that can tell me a lot about someone. If they're training and they're going at something and their eyes are darting all over the place, that tells me that they're in a startle reflex kind of state, which means that they're not at optimal output. Their body's in a survival mode. So when we think back to that continuum, that spectrum of survival and performance, if someone is that state and I see them and their eyes are darting all over the place while they're doing something, they're on survival end. They're not on performance end where we want to be. So as an individual, if you can start to understand what are the inputs that you're experiencing, what are you feeling in your body as you're doing something and pay honest attention to them and not let your, say your ego get in the way of dictating your next action, then we can make a positive change. Are the outputs positive or negative? So this is what that ties into. So is what you're experiencing, are the outputs that you are experiencing, are they positive or negative towards what you are looking to accomplish? So is, that, is what you're, you're experiencing actually positive towards the, the thing that you want, or is it not uh, allowing you to accomplish what you're looking to do? And then lastly, reset. So reset is really important for our system and our state um, because this applies for in-session as well as post-session. So that ability to reset when things, you know, when shit hits the fan in, in session, right? You're going through your session. Your ideal is staying in that flow fight state, but 
maybe you come out of that. Maybe you hit a wall and you, you know, you flight and you freeze. Can you reset? What can you do to reset? What are the things that you need to do? Maybe it's breath work to bring you back to that parasympathetic state of flow, right? Maybe it's some other form of technique that you need to do to bring you back to that certain state. So what can you do in session? And then post session, what can you do to bring you in a certain state? So post session, let's talk training. So specifically hard training session, post session, you want to be in a state where you can recover. So if post session, you are doing things that keep you in a fight state or a sympathetic state, that's not going to help you recover. So post session, can you reset and do things that help you get into a parasympathetic recovery state? So again, that may be, I go back to it a lot, but breathing work, right? It's why recovery post-training is so important. Um, but something specifically is to do the things that bring you to that actual neurological state of parasympathetic. So breath work, cold glass of water, um, whatever you need to do in that sense to bring you back to a certain recovery state. Uh, identifying your state of self during the other 23 hours of the day. This is something you talk about with training, that training, an hour of training in a day is 4% of your day. So what are you doing with the other 23 hours of your day? Same thing applies when it comes to your state. What state are you in throughout your day? If you are constantly in a sympathetic fight state throughout your entire day, that's a massive demand on your body. So if you then go to train, maybe you need to understand that state, like going back to preparation, what state were you going into your training? So what can your expectations be coming out of your training session? And then again, what inputs are affecting you? So in that reset state, again, referring back to your inputs, what inputs are, are uh, you feeling? What things are you having? Sensations are you having? How are they affecting you? What can you do about them? So a general summary of all of this. Um, in itself, neurology, in human performance, human output, uh, training, et cetera, this is a, it's an emerging field. It's something that is um, going to be very mainstream um, over the next you know, decade. Um, but uh, it's definitely something that we need to consider in that everything we do, we're either purposely doing it with our neurology or accidentally doing it. Um, so we need to consider our neurology and, and its effects on ourselves, um, the states that we are in, in order to have better positive outputs. Uh, body research around neurology and, and your performance is massively growing on you know, a yearly basis, monthly basis, it's a whole bunch of stuff. Um, that is coming out in regards to our outputs and our ability to perform and function as humans, regardless of if it's training or in our, you know, personal life or work life. And so there's many applications of it. It's not just about your ability to lift a whole bunch of weight. Um, and how can we do that better? It's also about your ability to function and have a higher performance output in your workplace. So all of these stem from our neurology uh, first and feed down from there. Couple of little readings that if you are so inclined to look into or want to, to do a little bit of reading. Um, one book is called Why Do I Hurt? So this is just a great little book on pain um, and what it means. The Brain That Changes Itself, fantastic book on neuroplasticity and brain science and everything involved with how our brain functions and case scenarios of uh, these things. Pocket Guide to the Polyvagal Theory, so the transformative power of feeling safe. So this is about our vagus nerve and everything about our vagus nerve and how we can take action with our vagus nerve to make us feel safer, calmer, uh, have better flow output. And then the Free Energy Principle, a Unified Brain Theory by Carl Friesten. Um, again, this is one that talks about how our, we're constantly looking to stay in a predictive state that our brain can predict the outcome so that we don't have greater free energy which means we can survive longer. So that is physical states and neurology 101. I know it's a lot of sciencey information, a lot of stuff that way. Um, but in general, the main takeaways that I want you guys to have with it is to consider 
the things in your life that um, maybe we take for granted a little bit. So, you know, what we see, what we smell, what we taste, what we feel, the, the increase in heart rate, the increase in our breathing as we're going and experiencing something, tune into those, pay attention to those a little bit more and feel those out, start to identify the states that you're in and the experiences that you're having. The experiences in the states of, are you in a flow state? Recognize that, identify those times that you're in that kind of state, identify those times where you have that frustration, that anger, and that feeling of like, you know what, I need to fight, right? When is that state? Um, when are you fleeing from something? And why is that? What's causing you to do that? What are the sensations that you are having that are causing you to flee or to freeze, right? When you're going about something and you just like freeze up and you're like, uh, I don't know what to do and I can't, I'm not sure. Why? What is the reasoning behind that? What are you feeling? What are the sensations you're having? What are the inputs that you are experiencing that are causing that type of output? So I hope that that's something you guys can take with you and apply uh, in your life. If you want, oops, the wrong one. If you want references, there's a whole bunch of references. I will be sharing this um, up on the community page, but there's a whole, this is not done in a very nice way, but uh, there's a whole bunch of references here on pain and on everything that we talked about today. This is not like APA formats or anything university-wise. This is just, this is just copy and paste. So my apologies. All right, that is it. Thank you guys for joining me. Well, there have you guys. I hope you enjoyed that webinar on our physical states and our human neurology and how it can affect our performance, our training, our life. This was a fun one for me to discuss as I always love diving down the rabbit hole of human neurology and how our brain and our nervous system affects us in our day-to-day -day life. If you have any questions, please let me know. Please share this out with your friends, family, anyone you think would be interested. Looking forward to doing many more of these. With that, it's time to level up. Voices rising like a church choir. Light it up